Okay, so we last time began this passage, we got distracted and we spent our time in the book of Numbers and the book of Daniel, a reason why if you were away, and by the way, if you are ever away, if things come up, you're not able to be here, something else is going on, you're sick, uh, Dan works very hard to make sure the sermon's up on the website within about an hour or so. Um, it's available very shortly afterwards, um, and you, it's always good to keep up with the flow of this. But for those of you who haven't, we did see last time that Herod is a king, a pagan king, who is concerned by the Jews, in particular this Jewish leader, this one who is born king of the Jews. And so he basically tries to gather Babylonian magi that they might be those who would assist him in the process of harming the Jewish people. We saw that that was a direct and deliberate parallel with another pagan king who again was concerned about the Jews and the Jewish leadership and was seeking to have a Babylonian magi come and hinder the uh, the work of the Jews. And that was uh, Balak who hired Balaam in the book of Numbers and every time Balaam, who had this reputation as a, as a mystical man, who whenever he cursed someone, they were cursed. When he opened his mouth to curse Israel, four times words of blessing came forth. And each of those times, there were messianic prophecies and messianic truths. And on the fourth one in particular, we, we had our focus because it spoke of a star being associated with the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish king, the Jewish ruler. And that then left us wondering, well, we see the connection here, and we see that the, uh, the, the, why it is that a star would be something indicating the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish king, but well, how come these magi knew of that? And we went back and we saw from the book of Daniel how Daniel had... Uh, been in charge of the school of the Chaldeans. He'd been in charge of this group of Babylonian magicians, scientists slash occultists, which is what the Magi were, and that he would have trained them up in the scriptures and in the word of God, and many of them undoubtedly have believed and their children have believed going on for the generations since Daniel. And Daniel in Daniel 9 and had that prophecy whereby the timing of the coming of the Messiah was given. And so it wasn't just that there was a strange star in the sky. They knew that they were coming to the time when Messiah was born. And so it answered all sorts of questions for us as we went through that, but it leaves us needing to deal with the bulk of this passage again today. So Jesus has been born, and he's still in Bethlehem, literally the house of bread. We'll talk about that in a moment. And it is in the days of Herald the King, the Magi come. We spoke last time about that famous Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and we saw that it was completely wrong in every single possible regard. 
that they weren't kings, that there were kings in the passage that were important, but it wasn't them, that there wasn't three of them, they had three gifts, but there were probably hundreds of them, and they certainly weren't from the Orient, they were more from the sort of Iran-Iraq kind of area. That's what the East was considered to be. But they came nonetheless from the East Mesopotamia, and they wanted to worship the king of the Jews, and we spoke about how they came to that understanding last time. They saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, we are going to see again and again in Matthew's gospel, particularly in this nativity section, we've seen it almost every week so far, we're going to see it again this week, but chapter 1, verse 1 is setting the stage for all of this. So just to repeat it yet again, because I want to drill this into you. Jesus is the son of David. There is a prophecy of a Jewish child born of a virgin who will become king, who is both man and God. These aren't church ideas. These aren't New Testament ideas. These were established through the prophet Isaiah at the latest And there is a one who is both God and man, who is a child who will become king, and he will rule and he will reign, and his kingdom will have no end. And that is all instigated by this very phrase, son of David. That when the Davidic covenant was given with the promises for the house of David, for the descendants of David, that there would come from David this eternal king. That when this human child was born, his human lineage would be through the house of David. Son of David is the God-man, the Messiah, the child king. But also in chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus was referred to as son of Abraham. And Abraham was the one who came to God by faith. And though he is the father of the Jewish nation, he was he was told that all nations would be blessed through him. And right the way through Matthew, so far, and it will continue, we see this constant tension whereby Matthew is predominantly written to Jewish people. And yet there is this constant reminder that the Jews were always, always rather, supposed to take the light to the Gentiles. That through the Jews light would come to the Gentiles. And that this Messiah is going to be the one that gives the Gentiles that light. We spoke about that at the end last time. And so the Magi coming from Mesopotamia to worship the Jewish king is a fulfillment of so much of the Old Testament. And we will talk about that as we proceed. We noted last time in verse 3 that Herod was troubled by this. He is troubled for two reasons. Number one, because there's going to be a king of the Jews. Herod is somebody who has nominally converted to Judaism. Many of you have family in the Bible Belt and you will be aware of this problem. The people who are nominally Christians... It's true not just in certain regions or certain countries, but it's true potentially everywhere. It's quite possible that you might come to this church, you might be a member of this church, and that you might die a member of this church, and then you might stand before Christ and say, Lord, Lord, and he says, get away from me, I never knew you. Nominal faith is not saving faith. Herod here 
had nominally converted to Judaism to appease the Jews, but he was no believer. There was no transformation in his life. There was no fruit that comes from salvation. And so he is troubled because he probably knows enough. Because I tell you, if you only knew about three or four things about Judaism, you knew that they were monotheistic, I suppose. You knew that they that they um, kept a law that God had given them. Maybe you knew that circumcision was part of that. I mean, there are a few highlight reels that you would know of. And I imagine one of the things he knew is that there was a messianic expectation and that there is one who is going to come as king of the Jews that will overthrow all of his enemies, all of their enemies, and establish his kingdom. So he's a little bit troubled. I suspect he's also troubled because, there, as I've said, there aren't three people arriving. There are people arriving with three gifts, which we'll talk about in a moment. But rather, there were many arriving. Again, if the scripture doesn't tell us how many, my guess would be hundreds, if not thousands. Why? Because if you were part of a group, uh, a church, if you want to use the term very, very loosely, a congregation of believers in a foreign land who have been saved through the ministry of Daniel and your families have been waiting for centuries while the clock has been ticking away until the coming of the Messiah. And then finally that time comes and then appears this glorious shining in the sky and you're like... This is it. This is what we've waited for for centuries. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to say I'm really sorry. Season finale on Netflix next week. I can't go, you know. We're going to be, yes, let me go. I want to see. I want to worship this king. And so I imagine that all who believed from that land left. And none would have stayed behind. So there were many, many who were coming to worship. I believe that was part of what troubled him. And so verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. We're going to see, we've already spent some time last week in two Old Testament passages that I hope I showed you were pretty crucial to the foundation of this passage. And we haven't come to the first Bible quotation yet, we're just about to. And we're going to be in a bunch of other Old Testament passages. Chapter 2 of Matthew has got lots of Old Testament references. Some of them are, at first glance, problematic. We'll deal with one of those in detail next time. But Micah is not one of them. The prophecy of Micah is is in one sense quite a simple prophecy. And in fact, it's so simple that even all the scribes and chief priests understand it. And so, though Herod might know a few things, and he might know that there was going to be a Messiah, he didn't know enough of the Bible to know where, but these who were the experts in the law certainly did. And so they say to him in verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. At this point, we have... Uh, in many Bibles, it will be in capital letters or italics to indicate that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And here it is. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth the leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what is fascinating about this quote 
is, well, there's multiple things that are fascinating about it, but you know what we're going to have to do to find those things, and then we're going to have to turn to the book of Micah. So if you would turn, maybe keep a ribbon or a bit of paper or a finger or a pen in Matthew, you don't have to go far. Going back to the Minor Prophets and Micah 5, if you're using a pew Bible, is on 1250, page 1250. The book of Micah is like so many of the prophets in the Old Testament, is a roller coaster ride. It's one of those, they're all, all the prophets, they would say, doom, destruction, darkness and judgment. Doom, darkness, destruction and judgment. And they would just echo these kind of messages of wrath upon Israel. And you think, well, that's it, we're done for. And then the prophets will go, but God is good and God is faithful. And he will restore. And Micah is no exception to that format. And so Micah, who, who by the way is, is a prophet who was clearly uh, influenced by his uh, contemporary Isaiah and there's passages and parts of uh, Micah that are almost identical to the prophet Isaiah in multiple places. And uh, Micah's a fascinating book in so many ways and I'll try not to get too distracted. But when we When we have the early chapters of Micah, we have destruction, we have judgment uh, upon Israel. The rulers are are denounced in chapter 3. Then when we come to chapter 4 of Micah, we're told that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains, lifted up above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, And many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Again, one of the hundreds of passages that talk about Gentile salvation in the Old Testament comes up again and again and again. And that is a very, very uh, similar passage to Isaiah 2, which uses almost identical language. It is in that day, if we continue over the page in verse 6, declares Yahweh, I will assemble the lame and gather the banished, even those upon whom I have brought calamity. And so all peoples of all nations those who have been harmed, even those in many cases who've been judged, that they will find peace and they will find restoration. These are the children of Abraham, the children of faith, those who are not Jews by descent, but those who are God's people by faith, even Gentiles, even those of nations. And as that chapter concludes, we then come into the Babylonian captivity. Verse 10, writhe and give labor, and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, so they're out of Jerusalem, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon, and there you will be delivered. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so there is this confusing passage, many will disagree over these interpretations, but that there is this sense in which God is going to free his people through Babylon. The biggest problem that Israel had pre-Babylonian captivity was idolatry. 
And it's as if God says to them, oh, you like idols? I've got a place for you. And they go to the world center of idolatry. And they get their fill of idolatry. And once they return from that land, they never had the problem in the same way ever again. There was a redemption that comes. But in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us with a rod. They will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And again, you know, I... I would love to teach Micah and really do a deeper dive into this, but it does at first glance seem to be, um, and many commentators will agree that this is talking of the Babylonian captivity, that the king of Israel, the judge of Israel, that the, 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 would refer to the final leader as they went into captivity. And it's at this time of great darkness that Bethlehem receives a word. And this is very typical in the scriptures. We see this again and again, that it is often, we saw in Isaiah 7, just the other week, that here you are and there's this terrible thing coming, but here's a promise to you, house of David. Here's a promise to you that you might know. And the promise is this, it's for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth was born a child. Then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be peace. Now there's much here and we need to understand it to understand the usage of this quote in Matthew. Um, Though I believe that the chief priests and scribes are merely answering a very simple question. Where's he going to be born? Bethlehem. Okay, gotcha. Done. Finished. I think that from Matthew's perspective, there's more going on here. What he says as he does this is he says that that this little place, this little Bethlehem, is nothing significant in even within Judah. Remember, he's talking at dark times that this will happen. And it says that from this small place, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. This is God's way. He takes the, the, the weak He takes the broken, he takes the foolish, he takes those who've been broken and humbled. So often it was, you know, don't we have big strong Saul? This little kid doesn't even fit his armor. And yet God raises up David. And again and again, it's Jacob rather than Esau. It's it's the one that you don't expect. And so on and so forth. And in the same way, Bethlehem, this tiny place, will be the one that from Judah, as was prophesied in Genesis 49, that the ruler would come from. That this ruler is the Messiah is is 100% clear in context. It's not debatable. Even the chief priests and the scribes of that day understood it that way. And it's very, very clear at the end of verse 2, he's going forth uh, from everlasting from the ancient Days. Hebrew is a funny old language, which is something I'm learning more and more. And 
There is words in Hebrew that are often translated eternity, but really they only mean for an age. It was very hard in the Hebrew language to communicate something that in English is really simple, forever. And forever, we just mean like, like forever, forever, like forever and ever and ever. I mean, it's really simple, but it's not so easy in Hebrew. But this is an expression that is, some would say, is as strong as you can get to express eternity. His going forth are from everlasting. He, he has always been. And again, just is another reminder to us. Where do we get the idea of the Messiah being both God and man? From the Old Testament. Here it is again in Micah. That this ruler who is going to come, he is going to be someone who is from everlasting. He has always been. There is nothing new, friends, in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinct from the Father, and the Word was God, one with the Father. Nothing new. Old Testament teaching put into a nice little golden nugget. And when we look at the eternality of this ruler... We see in verse 3, there's a repetition of childbirth and the bearing of child and what have you, linking us back to the end of chapter 4, which is why I read that part, so that we understand what he's talking about, that there is going to be this time he's going to give them up. It's intriguing as to who will give them up. Will it be God the Father who will give them up for a time? Or will the one who has been born give them up for a time? And I think either is possible grammatically, I think with hindsight, and I think this is what Matthew is pointing us to, that what we're going to see in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus the Messiah, God incarnate, is going to come to his people, but he is going to give them up for a time. But by verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, In the majesty of Yahweh his God. And they will remain. They in context has to be the Jewish people. They will remain because at that time. He will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be peace. So when I look at Micah 5, 1 through 4. And into verse 5. The rest of verse 5 shifts back to the Assyrians and, and the current situation. When I see that, I see the raising up of the Jewish Messiah and then him handing Israel back over for a time before then later he has this period where there will be peace on the earth and he will rule and he will reign. And I accept that such an interpretation wouldn't be required But I certainly possible, and I think that Matthew is about to show us why he believes that that is the correct interpretation. And so it is that there is this clear teaching of Messiah being born in Bethlehem. One thing I want you to note about that as well. Bethlehem means house of bread. The way that many people interpret the Old Testament, you could they could probably have said, well, he's going to come from the house of bread. And that's because he feeds us. 
He comforts us, he feeds us, he leads us to green pastures. And so the Messiah is one who's going to come and bring understanding. And he's going to feed us. So Bethlehem is just symbolic. You could very easily say that, couldn't you? Except, of course, he said he'd be born in Bethlehem, so he was born in, drumroll, Bethlehem. That's how we read the Old Testament. And then some of you are thinking, well, hold on a second. I know what's coming up in Matthew in a few verses. We will deal with that next week. But what we will learn next week is that the scripture can be trusted. It says he'll be born in Bethlehem, so he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, just as we turn back to Matthew, looking at Micah as well, and keeping our, I've got my hands in both places here. Um, I want you to see a few things. You, Bethlehem, and I'm reading from Matthew now. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, um, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, and out of you shall come forth a leader. Now, all of that is contained in Micah 5, 1 and 2. There are changes. There are, it's not word for word the same. One of the main reasons for that is that normally when the Old Testament is quoted, it's quoting from the Greek translations, which collectively are known as the Septuagint. And so they're not exactly the same as our, uh, our Old Testaments, which are translated from the Hebrew. Think of it as being a bit like a paraphrase. It's like we're jumping from the Legacy Bible to the NIV or the New Living Translation or something like that. But you can see that what is being said in Micah is being repeated in Matthew. That Bethlehem is the place that is in the land of Judah. That uh, the speaking of the, the status of Bethlehem as being least or little amongst the uh, the uh, among amongst Judah within Judah and that out of this place Bethlehem that is so little so insignificant is going to come forth a leader but if you notice in Matthew it adds the expression at the end of verse 6 who will shepherd my people Israel now that isn't there In Micah at that point. I did read a bit further because in verse 4 of Micah 5, it says that this ruler will also shepherd his flock. And so there is a reference to shepherding, but it's not a, it's not a like a a translation. It's not a a, a sort of paraphrasing. It's the same concept, but it's not really anything that we could call a quote. But it is, in fact, a quote, but it's a quote of another part of the Bible. So what the scribes here have done is they've gone to Micah and said, according to Micah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then at the end, they've added another quote. And they've added a quote from 2 Samuel 5.2. So some of you are turning there already because you know me well. We're going to 2 Samuel 5, and for those of you with pew Bibles, again, for your convenience, it's page 422. And what we have in this passage, what we have in this part of the Bible in 2 Samuel 5, is we have a very important event. We have David being anointed king over all Israel. David is uh, 
is at this point being anointed. And we, well, let's just read from verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. It's a coronation. And said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And David and Yahweh said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David cut a covenant with them in Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. What we have there is this. There is the coronation of David. David, who, by the way, has this covenant that Israel has cut with him, the Davidic covenant, which I think is the one being referenced here in the agreeing of him to be the king. They're not just saying we want this man to be our king, but rather that this is the one of the Davidic covenant. This is the one that Yahweh made promises to on behalf of David and his descendants. And so David here, as he is made king and he rules, the people of Israel are saying, look, even when Saul was king, you were the one looking after us. You were the one who led us in and took us out. There's Saul in his palace. There's Saul sitting comfortably. And you're the one leading us into battle. You're the one who is rescuing us. You're the one who's delivering us from our enemies. And so they say in that context, Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. It is that verse that is quoted at the end of Matthew 2, verse 6. What is Matthew doing? He's pointing us to David as king. He's pointing us to the Davidic covenant. And he's saying, this one is not just a ruler. This one is the ruler. And even the scribes and the chief priests are able to say, there's a ruler being born in Bethlehem according to Micah, but we want you to know that our understanding is, is that this is not just any ruler. This is just not any king of the Jews, but this is the son of David. This is the one who was a, who, of whom David is a type. This is the one who, like David, will shepherd Israel. He won't just rule a tyrannical rule. He won't just rule from a distance. He will come alongside and he will lead them in and lead them out. He will be the one who cares for them and loves them. He will be their ruler and their shepherd. This is the Davidic king. This is the Messiah. And I think that just in those two passages of scripture, Micah 5, 2 Samuel 5, that what we have in those quotations combined is we have the clearest of declarations that essentially what we're seeing here is all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. God and man, ruler, no beginning, no end. There's passages like Micah that say his going forths come from everlasting. And there's passages in Isaiah 9 where it says his kingdom will never come to an end. 
He has no beginning. He has no end. And yet he is born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. And yet he will rule forever, Isaiah 9. And all the kings of the earth will bow before him or he will crush them when he makes earth his footstool, Psalm 2. And so all of these prophecies come together. What even, even the unbelieving, rebellious, apostate chief priests and scribes knew was that the Messiah was promised and that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. That takes us through to verse 7 as we're back in Matthew now. And Herod secretly calls the Magi and carefully determined from them the star appeared. Verse 7 is an important verse. it's It's one of those nativity scene ruining verses. It's like if you like your little nativities with the, you know, you've seen it with the, the shepherds on one side of the manger and the, and, and the, the kings, quote unquote, uh, on the other side of the, um, on the other side of the manger. And, uh, and there they are all gathered together. And hundreds of times the, uh, children have walked into churches and, you know, the, the shepherds have come one side and the kings have come the other. And they're, hey, hey kings, hey shepherds, hey shepherds, hey kings. And they greet one another and there they all are together. Never happened. And verse 7 is a clue to this. Because in verse 7, he determines from the Magi when the star appeared. So Herod is, Herod is not dumb. He, he's worked this out, okay? That these guys have come from way across the wilderness and the desert into the what was for them the Far East. Again, not, not the Orient, not what we would call the Far East today, but Mesopotamia, the Iran-Iraq kind of modern day. And they couldn't just go through the desert to get there because, you know, there weren't enough Starbucks on the way and, you know, they, they might have got a little thirsty. They have to go around what's called the Fertile Crescent around the north. And it was a long, long journey. And so it is that Herod is aware that them saying, ah, now's the time. Oh, there's a star, the Messiah, let's go. And off they went. But that journey is a good year or so. I mean, can you imagine the anticipation? Think what you were doing this time last year. Think what you were doing 18 months ago. And that they would start a journey that long ago. And all that anticipation, we're going to worship the king, we're going to worship the king, we're going to worship the king. And then they show up for a few days and worship the king and they have to go home again. I mean, they really wanted to worship the king, right? So so Herod needs to know when the star comes in the sky, because that is the thing that that declares the birth of Messiah. We made that connection last time as we closed the sermon. That they're the Jewish shepherds, humble, low Jewish shepherds, that the Shekinah glory, the glorious manifestation of God, (coughs) who dwelt in the temple and the tabernacle, but then left the temple and tabernacle and has not been seen by the Jews, has not been amongst the Jews for centuries, since the time of Ezekiel. That the glory of God appears to the shepherds on the mountainside. And at about the same time, the glory of God also appears in this brilliant shining in the sky. Not, I believe, as I said last time, a literal star. You don't need to look at astronomical records of that era of history. This was the glory of God in the sky that appeared and drew them. And so the the glory appears to Gentiles and Jews at the same time. The problem is the Gentiles are, as Paul would later say in Ephesians 2, far off. 
and they are being brought near by the glory of God. And there's quite a journey. So, and we're not going to be doing this for a few weeks, but I want you to note that in verse 16, Herod saw he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under. Two years! Why? Because they travelled for well over a year to be able to get to Bethlehem. They got to Jerusalem and then out from to Bethlehem. It wasn't a short journey. And therefore, he needs to make sure that he's covered himself. That did, did, was the Messiah born when the star appeared? Was the Messiah born just before they arrived? Well, it could have been any of those things from Herod's perspective. So we need to cover our bases. Let's go up to two. No older, but up to two. Why? Because of the length of the journey. So when the Magi come to, to worship Jesus, he's more of a toddler than a baby. He's around that kind of age. So they... He would have determined the time, and that leads to the decision of the slaughter, and the ages, rather, of the slaughter, later on in verse 16. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. So, uh, he then, in verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. I will be careful not to go on to a rant of don't trust Caesar, but I think that there is... We, we need to understand who our friends are and who they aren't. You know who our friends are? People who've bowed the knee. Those who love the Lord. And churches, I won't get drawn into this much. I'll try and be brief and I'll try and be a little vague deliberately as well. But suffice to say, there are many things that are offered by the government to businesses and churches And when handouts were being given out over the last few years, we didn't take a cent. We have no allegiance with Caesar. God is our provider. And we need to be careful who we trust. And I think that here, you know, there is even a profession of faith. Let me know that I may come and worship him. You know, we are are in this era where we've had generation or two of altar calls and people professing faith and then going on to live their life however they were before. And we've come to the point where we somehow think that someone making a profession of faith is sufficient for us to presume faith. Please do not be under that illusion. Those who are cast away from Christ at judgment, they are often the ones who, as we will see in chapter 7 of this same gospel, say to him, Lord, Lord. You can call him Lord. It doesn't mean, as we say in England, diddly squat. Has no worth, no value. Call him Lord or you like. Go and talk to those Mormon missionaries that cycle around in their suits on their bikes in the neighborhood with their little tags on, ironically saying elder this and elder that when they're rarely over 21 years of age. And if you talk to those young gentlemen and say, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? They will without hesitation say, oh yes, he's Lord, he's Lord. But they don't know what Lord means. And they don't know who he is. And their Jesus is not our Jesus. And so how do we know? How do we know? Well, we know because when a person trusts in Christ, they are born again. 
Their life is no longer what it was. Their lives are changed. The things they used to want, the things they used to desire, the things that they built their life around is no longer the same. We do not add Jesus to a pantheon of other deities. We don't, we don't say, well, I like this and I like that and I do this and I do that and now we're throwing a bit of Jesus on Sundays. That is not saving faith. Saving faith is being born again. It's a bowing of the knee. It is an acknowledging of the deity and the majesty and the sovereignty of Christ. And it is coming to worship him. And that is exactly where we find ourselves. We go from the one who professes faith in verse 8, but who has none. And we come to those who truly do. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going on before them. This is where it becomes abundantly clear. We're not talking about literal stars. If there was ever a literal star hovering over your house, you may need some renovations to be done. You and the rest of the planet. So this is, this is the glory of God that had departed Israel that is now moving over the exact location where Jesus is. They didn't need Google Maps. They had the Shekinah glory. They were able to get to the very location. <clears throat> and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They've come, they saw the star. The star was over the region of Israel. They come to Israel, they come to Jerusalem. Where else would you go? He's going to be king of the Jews. You're presumably going to just go to the place where the king lives. I mean, in the palace in Jerusalem. And they show up to the king who you know, nominally uh, Herod, and uh, he doesn't know anything about this other king, and he's now a bit concerned, and they find out from the, from the experts in Scripture that he's going to be in Bethlehem, and then the Shekinah glory takes them to the exact spot. And so when the star reappears, then they rejoice exceedingly. I don't know about you, but if I was on a journey that was... Uh, 100,000 steps and you've done 99,900 of them. You're going to be relieved, aren't you? And you know, okay, this is where I'm going. It's like when they have in a marathon those signs that say 0.2 miles to go. You've done your 26, now there's 0.2. And there is great rejoicing at such a, such a sign. And it's a kind of same kind of thing. They've, uh, they've done their, their journey. They've got almost all the way. And now the star rears, reappears. And it's almost over. And so there is great rejoicing. And then here's the worship. Verse 11. And after coming into the house. I just, I just try and picture it. I'm, it's so easy, isn't it? We love these passages. We're so familiar with them. We read them year in, year out. And we just become so acclimatized and accommodated to them. And I like to sometimes just close my eyes and just, just imagine <laughs> this horde of, of magi who've been waiting for generations, who've traveled for over a year, who've come uh, and they just descend on this house, who have no idea that they're about to arrive and they sort of make their way in. I mean, can you imagine it? Can you imagine such a scene? It's about as far removed from nativity scenes as could be. Oh, did they take it in turns? How did they come in? What did they do? Who was it? Who was that? I mean, it's just fascinating to me. But they come to the house. They come to the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Just picture this. They fell to the ground 
and they worshipped him. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Oh, I wish I could have seen it. Oh, to have been there. I know your feeling. I, 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 I have a sense of that in my heart as well. And whenever I feel that in my heart, I have to rebuke myself. And so I'm going to rebuke you too. And this is why. That is not a better time to have been alive. That is a time under the old covenant. That is a time where the Spirit of God did not indwell people. And they, though they physically saw the child, they did not see Jesus as we see him. They did not have the understanding that we have. They didn't see the glory of him post-cross like we see the glory of the cross. They don't have the empowering Holy Spirit within them, enabling them to say no to sin and to live a life that glorifies God. You are in by far a better part of history than they were. And yet, do we have a fraction of the sense of joy and wonderment that we can come and bow and fall down and worship before him? How do we start our days? How do we begin Sunday? How do we come to church? What's our heart? What's our expectation when we open the scripture in the morning, when we come to be with the saints on a Sunday? Do we have even a fraction of that excitement, that anticipation? Do we have even a fraction of that wonderment as we fall down and worship And yet we are so much more privileged. I think the point of Matthew is that the Jews, the people of God through history, the ones who had the covenants, the scriptures, the promises, the patriarchs, that they too were put to shame by these Gentiles who came and worshipped And that's what they were. They were Gentiles worshipping a Jewish God, a Jewish king. And so in their worship, they then, having gathered themselves perhaps, they opened their treasures and they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Having given those gifts, they're warned in a dream. You see the parallel, parallel there with Joseph being taught in a dream. And they leave by their country another way and they avoid Herod and they avoid the Magi. And we'll see that more of that in the coming weeks as we see Herod's response. But they get to worship him and they get to present the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And it's in that ilk that we need now to turn to the book of Isaiah. And we turn to Isaiah 60, which Matthew definitely is alluding to here, as I believe you will see. We're on page 1,000. Easy number to remember in your pew Bibles. As we come to Isaiah 60, there's a word that comes up a lot in Micah, as we were looking at Micah 5. It's arise, arise, arise. And here again, we have a parallel with Micah, and we have arise. Some of you will recognize this from a song that we sing. Arise, 
shine, for your light has come. Now, what is the context of this passage? Whose light is it? It's your light. And I want us to understand this in the context. There has been, at the end of Isaiah 59, with the people of God, the Jews separated from Yahweh, that there is a confession of their wickedness. And there is a returning. And at the end of chapter 59, there is this statement where Yahweh says, As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit which is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor the mouth of your seed, nor the mouth of your seed seed, said Yahweh, for now and forever. In other words, at the end of Isaiah 59, God is referencing the new covenant, and he says there is this covenant that will be with you, and you will have my words on your lips, you will be my people, you will be faithful, and it will be true of you, it will be true of your children, and your children's children forevermore. This is one of, again, the hundreds of passages that Paul is thinking of when he summarizes, and thus all Israel will be saved. There is the promise of the salvation of Israel because there were covenants that promised such things. And it is in that context that he says to them, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Light has come to the Jews, and it's their light. (coughs) They have light. I suppose in the context of the passage, you could say that the light that they have is that they now have faith and salvation and understanding. But how has that light come? Oh, I think we know. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. It is through the Messiah that light has come. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. It's your light. The glory is upon you. Why? Because they are the Jews. They are the promised people. They had the covenant. They had the patriarchs. They had the promises. And they had the scriptures. It is their God and their Messiah. And that light that is theirs has come. And the glory of their God has risen upon them. For behold, darkness will cover the earth. Dense gloom the peoples. But Yahweh way will rise upon you. Again, there is this period of history that is that is marked by darkness and gloom. Many times in Isaiah and other prophets, the day of the Lord is described as a day of darkness and a day of gloom. And there will be this gloom over the earth, but Yahweh will rise upon you. The coming of God is dependent on the Jewish people. We'll talk about that Another time, we talked about it many times. His glory will appear on you. So it's all about them. But now look at verse 3. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, there will come a day when the light of the Jews shines upon the earth. And there will be Gentile salvation because of that Jewish light. And what is that Gentile worship when when nations come and the kings come and the leaders come to worship and to see that Jewish light? What will that look like? Let's read on. Lift up your eyes about, round about and see. They, that'll be those nations and those kings, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Mm, Gentiles coming from afar. 
You see where I'm going with this? Your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hips. You will see and be radiant. Your heart will tremble, be large with joy. The abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. So it's again speaking to the Jews, but the nations are going to come with their wealth. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. Those from Sheba will come. Ooh, what's this? They will bring gold and frankincense. They're going to come and they're going to worship. And they're going to bring gifts of gold and frankincense. And they will bear good news of the praises of Yahweh. Isn't that fascinating? That here we have one of the key passages in the whole of the Old Testament about the the Gentiles coming to worship the king of the Jews. And they come and they bring gold and they bring frankincense. Why do they bring gold? Gold is what you bring for a king. Gold speaks of his royalty. He is the king. He is mighty. He is powerful. You must bow before him. You must acknowledge him as Lord and as king. He is sovereign. He is in charge. That is the gold. They also bring frankincense. The clue there, if you're not familiar with frankincense, is it's frank incense. It's to do with worship. Because this one who is king is also God that he must be worshipped. And so there is coming a time when the Jewish king will be on the throne and the nations will come and they will bring gold to acknowledge his kingship, his majesty, his might. And they will bring incense to worship him because he is God incarnate. But what don't they bring? They don't bring myrrh. In that day, they won't bring myrrh. But these guys did. Because myrrh was used for embalming. And myrrh represents death. And when the nations come, like like Micah said, like Isaiah before him, when they come to the mountain of the Lord to worship the king, they will come and he will live, as Daniel says, and reign and have a kingdom that will have no end. The government will be upon his shoulders and the kings of other nations will come and bear tribute and they'll bring gold and they'll bring frankincense. But there will be no myrrh because this king will never die and his reign will never end. But I think the most astonishing thing of all about the Magi I don't really have an answer for this. I mean, we've worked out how they knew. We worked out that they had scriptures, thanks to Daniel, that they knew the star, they knew the timing, probably down to the year. They knew all of this stuff, and it explains so much. And yet, somehow, in the midst of it all, they also knew that he was going to die. Again and again in Matthew's Gospel, The Jews, the people of the scripture, they didn't know. Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to die. They didn't know. And yet it's the people who were separate from them and the corruption of the religion of their day. It was John the Baptist coming in from the wilderness who says, Behold the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sins of the world. And it's the Magi who come from the far side of another wilderness who come and bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Somehow, the teaching of Daniel was preserved. The words of Isaiah, the prophet, perhaps, were preserved so that they know that the one who was going to be both God and man, king and ruler, Messiah, was also going to have to die for the sins of his people, the Jews, and all those who, through like Abraham, were going to come from many nations on the basis of faith and find their salvation in him as well. And so as we wrap up that section... I want to just read to you. We've already dismissed we three kings of Orient are. (laughs) Completely inaccurate in every regard. But it does end with this. It talks about them at the end. And it talks about God and king. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. Verse 2. Verse 3 begins, Frankincense to offer I, incense owns a deity nigh. And then verse 4 begins, Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. And it is all wrapped up in verse 5. Glorious now behold him arise, King, gold, God, frankincense, and sacrifice, myrrh. This is the story of Matthew, the one who is king and God, and the one who will die for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these glorious truths. We praise you for opening our eyes that we might see not just his might, not just his kingship, not just that he is God, but that he who is God and man died in our place for our sins. And Father, I beg you that any who are here today, any who hear this later on, any who have not yet bowed the knee before you, any who have not trusted in your offer of salvation through your Son, that you would open their eyes, that they might bow before the King, worship the God, and accept the sacrifice in their place for their sins, that they too may be born again and live a life that brings glory to your name. Amen.